Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor. Solving the soil health puzzle? Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit, but it takes work and is puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality soil first cover crop products, plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local soil first dealer, Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at SoilFirst.com, that's S-O-I-L-1-S-T.com, or call 800-356-SEED. If you've spent any time at all researching cover crops online, you've probably come across the famous picture of Dave Brandt holding a gigantic tillage radish. Brandt laughs about this photo now, but for this meme-worthy no-tiller from Carroll, Ohio, that massive taproot only hints at the amazing benefits he's seen from the cover crops he's been growing since 1976. For this episode of the Cover Crop Strategies podcast, contributing editor Martha Mintz chats with Dave about some of those benefits, as well as the lessons he's learned in his 45 years of using cover crops. Dave talks about how and why he went from using a single species cover crop to a multi-species mix, some of the unusual methods he's used for measuring nutrient payback from covers, how they've helped him reduce fertilizer inputs by 80%, herbicides by 45 to 50%, and fuel by 10 to 15%, the equipment he uses to plant green into 36,000 pounds of cover crop biomass, and much more. Today we have the awesome opportunity to speak with Carroll, Ohio farmer David Grant. I'm sure exactly nobody will be surprised, David, to find you on a Cover Crop Strategies podcast. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we're glad to have you. So you've been no-tilling, cover cropping, regenerative farming for positively ages. But for those who have maybe not followed you as closely as some of us have, why don't you just in a nutshell kind of give me a brief history of the different transformations you've moved through um, with your farming system over the years? Well, we started in 1969 with our first field of no-till it was no-tilled into uh, a heavy bluegrass sod. The chemicals were pretty short, so it was atrazine and 2,4-D at that time. It took another year or two for us to be 100%. So in 1971, we were 100% no-till, mainly because we didn't have the equipment or the time to do tillage. At that time, we were feeding 200 Charlay cows and calves, plus 200 sows spare to finish. And my wife and I, we were pretty busy with the livestock. So it just didn't, we just didn't have time to do tillage. So we had to make the no-till work and, uh, we learned lots of lessons as we proceeded on. Uh, we always tried to have some kind of field day every year. So we got to see some of the newest equipment that was manufactured from, uh, 71 till present day. And, uh, we was fortunate enough we got to run a lot of it and see a lot of it that didn't work, but a lot of it did. And, helped a lot of manufacturers to improve what we have see today. So about any color today, you can no-till into cover crops and get uh, really good uh, stands of corn and soybeans and small grains. And, and cover crops was a huge part of, of what you have done over the years. When did cover crops really come into your operation? We started in 76 with single species cover crops. Uh, we started with... Uh, Perry vetch and inter-pea. Uh, we used some rye. Uh, 
a lot of times we just used some wheat that we had left over, and we found out that didn't work as well as the rye. So after a couple of years of uh, learning some of the disasters with uh, with the wheat, we moved to rye. And uh, for 10 years, we used a single species because we didn't know any different. We didn't figure out you could put two or three plants together and they would survive. And uh, then we, we began with uh, Steve Roth in the late 90s, uh, working with his tillage radish and uh, bought a white planter that had, uh, it was an eight row 30 with uh, seven splitters. So we could alternate uh, reddishes and winter peas in a row after small grains. And we saw a quite good success. And that's how we really started with uh, using multiple species. And today, everything we plant after our small grains are uh, either an eight or a 10 way species because we can improve the soil so much faster. So maybe that would be a good time to, why don't you give us an overview of what your farm looks like today? You know, how many acres are you farming? What crops are you growing? Uh, maybe walk us through a year of your rotation. Well, we operate uh, around a thousand acres. It goes up and down uh, yearly because we lose some to development or to houses or house lots. Uh, I have uh, 23 landlords. I have six of those that have less than five acres. And uh, so and that makes it interesting. But we grow corn. We have about 330 acres of corn. We have about 330 acres of soybeans and about 334 acres of small grains, which consist of oats, wheat, rye, fruticale, spelts, and that we sell to our seed company that we started. Uh, and it, the farm stands on its loan and we sell the, the seed to the, the seed company, and it stands on its own. So we're trying to move cover crop seeds throughout Ohio and other places. Yeah, you guys have, have really diversified. Now, that's uh, Walnut Creek seeds, is that correct? That's correct, yes. yes. Okay. So now, where do cover crops fit into your rotation with those crops? Uh, we'll just start off with the corn. We harvest the corn. Uh, we'll go in in the fall with the drill. And so rye and radishes and uh, grape seeds, just depending on what time of the year, if it's before October the 1st, we use radishes. If it's after October 1st, we switch to uh, rape seed uh, because it tends to hang in there over the winter a lot better uh, and works really nice. And then we go to soybeans into the rye rape uh, cover crop. After the soybeans come off, we immediately go to a small grain. So. Every year, I know exactly what's going into those fields for the next season. And is that is that pretty important when you're looking at your cover crop mix is to understand what's going in next or, or how it all works together? Yeah, it's really important to know that. You know, I'm, I'm trying to teach farmers who want to use cover crops. We need, we need to look forward uh, at least five or six months to see what you want to do. We want to figure out what their goals are. Uh, such as maybe they want to reduce erosion or maybe they want to reduce input costs. Uh, and we can accomplish that with both a multiple species cover and accomplish both things and really help them become more um, sustainable or more productive every year, you know. Mm -hmm. So when you're planting these species together, uh, you know, maybe go back to when you first mixed that uh, the tillage radish and, and the peas. You know, what What were you able to see with maybe just those two crops that, that proved to you that more is better than a monoculture? 
Well, what we, what we saw was that some places that where the peas maybe got a little stressed or was a little too wet on the soils, uh, we saw the reddishes actually, uh, what I would say, it helps the peas because the reddish put a fine root out and went over and actually went close to the winter pea to take some of that nitrogen that they capture from the atmosphere to make nodules. Mm -hmm. So in turn, our reddishes got bigger in diameter and deeper in the soil. And also, the winter pea got put on a lot more nitrogen nodules because the reddish was taking it away. And I thought it just looked like they'd done twice as much nodulation when they had the, the reddish beside them. And we were able to plant them as you would plant corn. So each reddish seed was four and a half inches apart. And, it, and every winter pea was two inches apart. And it just worked out really well to make a cheap cover crop that really covered the ground and give us a lot of biomass throughout the fall and then it stayed there until spring, you know. So in order to see that, um, you know, describing what happened with those roots, I'm assuming that you did some digging, and I assume you probably do a lot of digging on your farm uh, every year, all year. Um, you know, what's the, how important is that to what you do, and, and do you spend a lot of time digging around in the dirt? Uh, we spend a tremendous amount of time you know, uh, digging into the soils because we want to see how well these plants are performing as far as root growth grows, whether the nitrogen-fixing plants we're using are fixing nodulation, uh, so we can evaluate them. And we just like to see how it's going to ch change the tilt and uh, the uh, granular parts of the soil gets better. We lose compaction because... Uh, a lot of the plants we're using now will go from from three inches deep with fiber roots to tap roots down to five to six foot deep in the soil over the summer growth of the cover crop planted after the small grain. So are you the one digging those five to six foot deep holes? No, my wife said if it don't have a motor, I don't do it. So we use a little, we use a small backhoe and, <laughs> and do that research, you know. And uh, the the biggest thing that I said I probably did wrong was we had one reddish that I found. The first year we did it with Steve Groff, and it was five inches in diameter, 46 inches long tuber with a four-foot long taproot from that. So I took it to the soil and water office, and for some reason I let them take a picture of me, and now I have to talk about it. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, you know, besides just digging and, and looking visually, um, have you – have I heard correctly that you've done things like actually remove uh, nodules from legume uh, roots and weigh them? You know, what are, what are some interesting ways you've found to to evaluate and measure how well or what your cover crops are doing for you? Well, we, when we really got involved in this. We tried, we started digging and washing the plants, looking at the nodulation, trying to weigh those nodules off. Uh, you know, we would separate them between what I would call ballpoint pin size to the size of your thumbnail, uh, and then we would go back monthly and dig that plant and see how those nodules were staying there. Uh, if we broke them open, they were bright red, which means they were real viable, full of a lot of, of uh, nitrogen for next year's crop. And I felt the larger my nodules was in the fall, the longer it would take the soil uh, microbes to break it down in the spring so we could actually feed our corn plant almost the whole year with the nodulation from our legume plants after our cereal crops were taken off, you know. Have you been able to act on 
the amount of nitrogen that you're producing with your cover crops? Uh, right now, most of our 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 eight and ten way mixes has at least uh, four nitrogen fixing plants with two to three carbon plants or grass crops, grass plants. And according to soil samples that we've taken yearly, we're running between 160 pounds of available nitrogen to the next year's crop up to 200 pounds. And is that just a standard soil test that you're running, or how are you determining that? Uh, we're doing that through the Haney test, and now it's going through to uh, either Ward Labs or Regen Labs in um, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And uh, they do it a little different. They don't use a harsh chemical to uh, to accelerate that. They use a, a water-based uh, process that actually acts like a rainfall event, and then they can tell exactly how much phosphorus and nitrogen and potash is in the soils that is available to the plant. Now, have you tested that out in your crops by by reducing, um, you know, your um, applied nitrogen or, or any um, applied uh, fertilizers? Yes, uh, you know, the, the nicest thing and what I try to get people to do as they use cover crops and and the hardest problem is part is probably learning to reduce because we're so accustomed to putting. X on to get X out, or Y to get Y out. Uh, so I, we did it as uh, maybe uh, two or three passes in the field. We didn't have anything. Uh, maybe two or three passes. We had half rates, uh, maybe a pass at a quarter rates, and then the balance of the field like we normally would do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we still have to have yield. We still have to be able to sell some crop. Right. And we was watching and comparing, and according to the yield monitor, where we had taken uh, 60 or 70% of the nutrients away, the crop yielded the same as if we put it all on, you know. And that's how we evaluated. And each year we do that just in case uh, uh, on one field, just to make sure we're still going down the same path, you know. So that is, that's probably saved you a little bit of money. Just, or, you know, how does that balance out between what you spend uh you know, managing those cover crops, planting them, uh, buying seed, you know, compared to what you would spend on nitrogen? Well, it, with the use of the Haney test uh, and looking at it and uh, utilizing what he tells us and then doing our own testing, we have reduced our uh, fertilizer inputs by 80% and our herbicide inputs down by about uh, 45 to 50%. And that depends on the year. How well the spring is, if it's a good spring where stuff can grow, we can you can get a whole buy get by with a whole lot less. If it's a cold spring and stuff don't grow very well, it takes a little more nutrients, a little more chemical to take care of those uh, cover crops. Now, those are some pretty impressive uh, statistics. You know, if you were a baseball player, that would be a pretty prized uh, card of statistics to go with. But some of the ones that I've seen that impress me even more because I, I know what people say about building soil organic matter and such is just how how far you've taken your soil. Um, tell me how your soil has changed and, and kind of the measurements behind um, evaluating how your soil has changed over the years. Yeah, I'm, uh, when we bought the farm that we started uh, this no-till on uh, in 1971, we had almost 1% organic matter. It was all Cardington clay-based soils, which meant it was kind of light yellow or light orange colored. Mm -hmm. uh, 
fairly deep uh, that way. Uh, so as we began, we saw uh, infiltration water got better. We saw the surface turn, turning darker. Uh, when they kicked off the soil health movement here, uh, gee, that's been eight or ten years ago, uh, they were here and dug a soil pit and said we had about 5% organic matter at that time. And wow. today, today we're pushing eight in the farm, the home farm. So uh, wow. we feel really accomplished about being able to change it. Uh, of course, it's been a 45-year, 50-year uh, challenge, but, you know, we went from one to eight. So uh, we're able to hold a lot more water. We can hold about eight inches of water an hour now. And uh, we have a lot of organic nitrogen in the uh, uh, 8% organic matter that we have, you know. Is that a bit of an insurance policy for you as a farmer? Yes, yes. Because, you know, we look at uh, supply chain is a huge issue <laughs> right now. You know, if, if you couldn't get any nitrogen, if you couldn't, you know, get some of the things that many people feel is critical to their their operation, you know, where would you be sitting? Well, last year we did a, a variety plot with uh, 20 different hybrids in uh, a 10-way cover that had 36,000 pounds of green biomass that we planted into. And... Uh, uh, we did not put any nitrogen on it just to see how these hybrids would respond. And our highest yielding hybrids there were 180 to 192. And the lowest yielding varieties there were 83. So some varieties responded well to the covers and some didn't. And that's what we try to figure out uh, as we look at uh, new varieties and new ideas coming out uh, from seed companies, you know. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor. Solving the soil health puzzle? Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit, but it takes work and is puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality soil first cover crop products plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local soil first dealer, Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at SoilFirst.com, that's S-O-I-L-1-S-T.com, or call 800-356-SEED. And now, back to the podcast. Would you say that the varieties, you know, are they taking into consideration performance with cover crops, or is that just up to you as a farmer to kind of figure out what's going to work best on your farm based on the hybrids that they have? There is some work being done by the corn hybrid for the people, but most of it's done with just a single species cover that actually probably gets burned off when it's 8 or 10 inches tall because they like to plant brown. We're probably, there's probably other people doing it too, but the, the, most of the farm research for varieties and large covers have to come from farmers that's using covers. So you said that, you know, planting brown. Tell me how you are planting when you're going into a cover crop. Are you, is it still green and growing, or, or what are your strategies that you use to terminate cover crops? Well, for corn, we like to see the species out there coming into bloom or, uh, most of the full blooms, especially rye, uh, the clovers, uh, the hairy vetch, the more blooms we had on the vetch, uh, we use a INJ crop roller, which has a, 
I call it a track and cleat design. It actually crimps the cover crop every four inches, so that actually helps to kill it. Uh, and uh, we plant first and then roll the crop afterwards. I think it just works a whole lot better. Uh, if for some reason uh, you're not getting a seed trench closed real well, the crop roller will actually lay that residue down in the seed trench, and we get close to 100% stands every year by using the crop roller after we plant. And if you got, you can visualize these cover crops will be somewhere between three to six foot tall that we're planting into. So now is is that controlling it completely, or do you have to use a, a herbicide to finish killing that cover crop? Uh, we could usually omit the uh, the uh, pre and the burn down about 90% of the time, and uh, we may have to post 50% uh, of the time. Okay. This depends on how tall and, and how much thick the biomass is. So when you're planting into those, you know, you said that you've seen uh, a lot of equipment come through your farm uh, for tests over the years. Uh, so what, what do you use now? What's, what's your equipment setup that allows you to plant uh, through that 36,000 pounds, did you say, yes. biomass in some cases? Right. Yes. Uh, right now we're using a white uh, 9800 uh, planter. Uh, it consists of a fluted colder on the front, two seed blades, gauge wheels on the seed blades, and two rubber-closing B-type press wheels on our planter. Uh, that's all we have on it. We have tried lots of row cleaners, and in our case, we have a lot of highly erodible ground. And if we move the residue on the side of our hills, it's 6 to 8% slope. We get a lot of erosion, so we just don't use them. I don't think we need them. Uh, with the experience we've had with planting, you know. So when you plant through that, you know, does the planter lay quite a bit of that cover crop down, or is it still still pretty up and vigorously growing even after the planter goes through? I imagine the planter lay about 40 or 50 percent of it down flat, especially where the rows are. Of course, you know, you've got about a seven or eight inch band there where the rows are. It does a nice job laying it down there. And then we just use the crop roller to to where the spacing and where the wheels have run over them, you know, so it works really well. And the same thing with soybeans into rye. I, I prefer the bigger the rye, the better I like it. Now, are you planting soybeans with a planter or are you drilling them? Uh, we're drilling them with a 30-foot Krauss drill right now. Any special setup on that to, to go through what I'm sure is very robust rye? Uh, we have a leading-edge solid colder on the uh, Grouse drill and uh, one, uh, smooth disc following it, and uh, uh, press wheel in the trench, and that's all. That all that is all that's on that planter. So, when you've laid down these huge amounts of residue, you know, are you still battling residue from the year before when you go back to plant? I don't know, like the next season, or how long does that residue hang around? Well, we can shell 200 bushel corn, and within a month, all we got is the 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 stuff and the ball where the roots are. We have so many earthworms and other critters that come, and uh, they just we have trouble holding residue. Uh, Even though you're producing thousands upon thousands of pounds of it. Yes. Right. Now, and the reason I think we we have quit using fungicides and insecticides. It's been ten years since we've used any of that, and we dropped uh, the seed corn tre the treatments on the seeds uh, five years ago. Uh, we are delaying planting about uh, two to two and a half weeks later than 
our neighbors do. We want our soils to be as warm as possible in the 58 to 60 degree range. So when we plant in three days, you can roll it, roll the corn or beans. And we can do that. It, uh, we don't have any problem with insects or anything working on it because the corn is really rapidly growing. And normally we'll pretty well catch up with the conventional corn that's been planted a month ahead of time, you know. Is there is there also some benefit to having like soil microorganisms or even beneficial insects there to battle off any of the negative things that you would normally be handling with a seed treatment, or is that not the case? Oh yeah, it's really great. I mean, we if you think about the biological activity in our soils, we have done some studies with Jonathan Lunger and a few other uh, entomologists, and uh, we it's estimated on our farm that we have the weight of four cows and four calves as far as microbial activity in the soil. So you can imagine how how much activity we have and how well that protects the crop we're trying to grow. Is that like per acre or how are yeah, they measuring per that? Per acre, per acre. So was that the case study you did with understanding egg? Yes, yes. So how did they go about measuring that? Like how does how does one, I mean these are microscopic. Uh, we, we take samples. Uh, Representative samples of the field, uh, send them to Jonathan or to a, another another lab that can uh, actually count the nematodes and the bacteria and the protozoa and the beetles and <laughs> all the other big name things that I can't pronounce. And counting, you get a report back nematodes, that sounds like a, a job for an intern. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we get a report back saying you got these many thousands or hundreds of thousands of things in your soils. And they estimate the weight from that, you know. Yeah, multiply it over the area. Yeah, um, correct. So have you, you know, obviously on your farm, you've been doing this for so long. We expect great, amazing things. Have you seen these tests done on other farms and, like, with a couple of years between to see if there's any advancement? Oh, yeah. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, what we do when we have people or when we pick up a new farm you know, if we pick up a farm that's been conventionally farmed, we'd like to get uh, a uh, some uh, a, a cover crop in there, such as uh, buckwheat. We know that buckwheat has a fibrous root system that goes four or five inches deep. And when you terminate buckwheat, it actually releases an enzyme from the roots that will help break down unavailable phosphorus and make it available. So we can add about 12 to 15 pounds of phosphorus to our soil samples by adding buckwheat. And with that fine root system on the surface, we have eliminated some of the surface compaction so we get a little bit more water infiltration. Then in the fall, after we take the corn crop off on a new farm, we'll probably put oats and flax because oats and flax are the best host for mycorrhiza. And since it's been tilled, there's very little mycorrhiza in the soil, so we're trying to build that because the mycorrhiza is what actually uh, the uh, bacteria and the nematodes eat, and it gives off the nutrients that the corn or beans or the wheat plant needs uh, to feed it. So have you done the study where you have them count the soil microbes kind of as a as a benchmark and then gone back and counted it later? Yes, uh, we only do that on a very few farms because it's like a $500 sample to get that accomplished. It right. takes them a while, you know. So, and, you know, all we're trying to say is we can improve the numbers, you know, 
the numbers mean more to me than and the species than anything else. So, uh, you know, if we pick one up, we'll try it, and then we'll try different cover crops to see how fast we can change the population under the soil surface, you know. Oh, and that's what I was curious about is how quickly you see the soil life responding to it being managed differently. Well, the first year, you know, if we get Ryan after corn fodder, we'll see earthworms increase. Uh, We'll see some other things happening. Uh, probably it'll go to beans, and then it'll go to small grains. So it would be two more years before we'd have a cover crop there in that field. And then we really see a change, and we can get that eight or ten-way species cover crop with all the different roots and all the different characteristics of those roots do for us. You know. Mm-hmm. So I, I mentioned uh, understanding ag. Can you tell me a little bit more about what understanding ag is and how you're involved there? Uh, Understanding Ag was started through Soil Health Academy, which I and Ray Archuleta and Gabe Brown and Dr. Allian Williams started as a way to educate producers about changing to regenerative ag. Uh, so we would hold schools weekly, monthly for about 30 or 40 attendees uh, for a fee, give them a three-day course. Uh, on how to get started and what's going on. And then all of a sudden we had lots of these schools and nobody had any help. So uh, Gabe and Ray and Dr. Williams started Understanding Ag, which is a consulting concern that actually helps them take soil samples, helps them read their samples, uh, make suggestions for mixes, uh, and how to improve their soils, and especially and incorporating the use of livestock to go along with that. Now, do you incorporate livestock? We have a few head. Uh, we've done all our work without it. Mm-hmm. It would have been a whole lot easier. We would have had some livestock <laughs> to get accomplished, you know. But we, you can do it without livestock or you can do it without. It just takes a little longer to get the soil to change without livestock as it does with it, you know. Yeah. Your livestock is just much smaller and under your feet. Yes, yes. Okay. So um, one thing, you talk about a lot about the different things you um, can reduce, but and it makes sense to say that no-till reduces fuel costs. Did you also say at some point that um, that uh, fuel costs can be reduced using cover crops? Yes, because, you know, no-till helped reduce the, uh, the, the, the cost of not doing tillage, but we still had some problems with friction of the header and uh, the, the the tires cutting in a little deeper in the soil, which took a little more power. But when you put a cover crop on top of where you're going to no-till, the header slides easier. The the piece of equipment doesn't sink quite as far into the soil. Usually, all you see is a little pleat mark, and your fuel consumption goes down. We've seen as much as 10 to 15 percent less fuel consumed cutting soybeans on rye cover versus bare soils. Oh. And we've also seen shell and corn where they're running green buggies. If they have a cover crop underneath there, we the buggy pulls easier. See, and I would have thought that it had to do with, uh, like, getting rid of your burn-down pass and stuff like that, where you probably also save, save fuel as well. Yes, right. Okay. So you've figured out a lot of things over the years. What are you working on now? Well, I'm really trying to build uh, our farm on nutrient-dense. Uh, we're trying to show that 
as we do regenerative farm practices, that the quality of grain is much better. So if we can feed higher quality grain to our livestock, uh, that means the meat that we will get from that animal or milk that from that animal could have more amino acids and more protein. So in essence, I'm hoping we can help the human race and be more healthy. And, now have, uh, have you have you worked on on determining if that is that still just a theory, or have you guys proven that out at all that the the nutrition follows through? Well, in most of our most of our corn we're shelling now will run between 8 to 11% protein, depending on the variety. Uh, it has been tested by Ohio State. We also, when we increase, increase the protein in the grain, we increase the test weight. So we're now shipping a lot of heavy test weighted corn. And when we can, uh, when our livestock producers buy them, they tell us that, the, especially in the hog operation, that the pigs go to market probably five to seven days sooner. They seem to be more healthy. They seem not to make as much noise in a finishing barn. Uh, they don't seem to be as flighty. Uh, so those are things we've noticed with little higher quality grains than what our conventional neighbor's grains are. Interesting. That's, uh, that's fascinating, and I look forward to seeing what you guys are able to achieve there. Well, in closing, do you have any fantastic advice to offer somebody who is looking into uh, getting into cover crops? on their farm? Well, I think they need to start with, uh, if they're not no-tilling or not using cover, I think it's the easiest way to get started is use the rye after corn. Uh, see how well they get along with that. That way they're used to green. Uh, and, and you know, they can either burn it off early or they can wait and plant into it or do a little bit of both and see how it works. Uh, the only advice i got to give them is it's not easy. And you have to take the time that you would have spent doing the tillage and the work in the ground, that time you spend with a shovel, walking through the fields, looking at the roots, understanding what you're trying to do, and try to find other people with doing the like things so that you can talk to each other and mentor each other to make it work because it's a lonely road by yourself out here if you don't ask somebody for some help. Yep. And there's a lot of good people throughout the United States today doing exactly what we are, and actually have taken cover crops farther than I ever thought they could go. Having traveled the whole United States, there's a lot of places where people are like, well, David's in Ohio. Surely they can do it there, but not here. Is there, have you ever found a place where you just can't make cover crops work? I don't think that, I don't think it's not been the cover crop won't work. I think it's been the mindset, you know. Uh, it is a little more difficult. It takes more management. You know, it's pretty easy to go out and take the plow or the disc out there and dry out the ground and disc it and level it up and then put all the fertilizer and chemicals and fungicides and the seed in the ground, and then all you got to do is pray that it rains, and if it don't, they turn the pivot on. So we, we take a crop that I call a good crop, grass crop, and they turn it into a hydroponic type of deal, where when we're doing regenerative farming, we're actually helping the plants, we're helping hold the soil moisture, we're... We're keeping the soil cooler. We're not losing carbon by doing the tillage. We save fuel consumption, probably as much as 20 or 30% savings. And I think it's a benefit for everyone. And in these times, I think it's worth thinking about and talking to people that are doing it to help you get started. Well, and you have been an incredible resource for many of those people who are now people that 
uh, folks that are new at it can turn to. So we, we thank you as a community for that and look forward to what else you can teach us in the future. But um, thank you, David, for taking the time to visit with us today, and best of luck in your next ventures. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to Carol Ohio no-tiller Dave Brandt and contributing editor Martha Mintz for that conversation about the benefits of long-term cover crop use. And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor. Solving the soil health puzzle? Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit, but it takes work and is puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality soil-first cover crop products, plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local Soil First dealer, Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at SoilFirst.com. That's S-O-I-L-1-S-T.com or call 800-356-SEED. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at CoverCropStrategies.com. Thanks for tuning in.